Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. Today's sermon is entitled, Good Resurrection, Better Resurrection. And our readings are from 2 Kings chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 11. If this message is an encouragement to you, as we pray that it is, please consider taking the time to go to our website and letting us know. The web address is www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org. We thank you and pray that the Lord richly bless you through the preaching of His Word. Well, greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Giver of life. Jesus said in John eleven twenty three. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And he then asked the question, do you believe this? Church, do you believe this? Amen. And David believed it and he knew this for, for, uh, he sang about it in uh, Psalm 116. He said, I love the Lord because He hath heard my voice and my supplications. Because He hath inclined His ear to me, therefore will I call upon Him for as long as I live. The sorrows of death compassed me and the pains of hell got hold upon me and I found trouble and sorrow. Then called I upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech Thee, deliver my soul. And gracious is the Lord. And righteous, yes, He is. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and He helped me. Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, and mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believe, therefore, and I have spoken. I was greatly afflicted, and in my haste I said, All men are liars. What shall I render unto the Lord for his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am thy servant. I am thy servant and the son of thine handmaiden and thou hast loosened my bonds. I will offer thee to sacrifice of thanksgiving And I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of thee, O Jerusalem. Praise ye the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us into your presence and we hear the words from the psalmist as he cries out to you and reminds us of the preciousness of the saints of God. And even in... Their deaths, they are precious to you. Lord, we pray today as we come before you that you would 
come in our midst, forgiving our sins, speaking to us, letting your voice uh, be the incorruptible seed of the word of God into our lives, changing us and making us like you. Feed us from heaven, for we hunger and we thirst after righteousness. Fill us, O Lord, and send us out to do the good works that you have ordained that we should do. In Christ's name we pray, and all the church said, Amen. Amen. Praise God from standing for a few moments while I read my text for you from Luke chapter 7. As I was listening to him read the story from 2 Kings, I thought in a former life today I may be preaching on the secrets of the seven sneezes of the Shunammite son. But I'm not. Uh, I'm going to be preaching about good resurrection and better resurrection. And uh, one thing to always keep in mind the scripture has things that we can't see right away, but none of them are secrets. The Bible says that God has made it to where we should be able to plainly understand what the word of God says. And sometimes uh, preachers feel like they're going to unlock some secret for you and tell you some crazy wild thing about the secrets of the seven sneezes of the Shunammite son. But I'm going to hold that for copyright later on. It's a, it'll be a book title. But uh, Luke chapter 7 Starting out in verse 11, it says this, And it came to pass the day after, uh, this was the day after uh, he had encountered the centurion uh, with the great faith, whose son was healed. Remember that? We talked about it last week. The day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and much people. Now, when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out. And he was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and he touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up. And began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying, <clears throat> A great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. And the rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. Let us pray. Lord, we have come to hear your voice, and I pray that we do, that you would illuminate this story in Luke chapter 7 to our hearts and minds that it would touch us where we are, that it would speak to us. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray and all the church said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. What a wonderful story. This day, as 
uh, and we don't really know how many days before in the life of this woman were torn with unthinkable grief and anguish. To be a widowed woman was burden enough, but this woman, let's call her the widow of Nain, okay? Let's say the widow of Nain. She was stuck with an unbearable blow. Like Ruth and Naomi, she had lost her husband, but perhaps he was a good man, maybe even the love of her life. But whatever he was, he certainly provided for her, as did the men of that time. But now she was alone with a son. No man to care for her. She is stricken this double blow. Not only is the grief compounded, but now... She is alone with no family and no one to provide for her. Now, one thing you may not know about Jewish law, and this comes up in in other stories, but part of what was so frightening is that if you were a widow and you only had one son, if your son died, the inheritance that you would receive, Israelites were all given land, and their land... went passed down through their family but if they had no children guess what they didn't get no land there was no inheritance no land and so she would have had no possible way to to live this was part of the reason in the story of the shunammite where the man said this woman has no son and her husband is old you see the prophet would have understood what this meant and this meant that this great woman, all that she had, if her, if her uh, husband died, she would be without anything. But if she had a little son, then all that she had would be preserved and be kept under him. We don't find ourselves in these kind of circumstances today, uh, and so we can't really relate that much. But Nain was then, and still is, a small village located between Mount Tabor... Uh, to the north and sitting on the side of Mount Mora, uh, not far from Nazareth. Uh, if you were going to, if, if, if this big panel up here was going to be the Sea of Galilee, uh, right up on the top there, on just to the left on the top would be Capernaum, where Jesus came from, and where he is going to the city of Nain would be about over here, and then Nazareth would be here. He was kind of on his way home. And he did some amazing things around the Sea of Galilee, which we're going to go back and talk about. We may be on the day before this, we may be on that for 10 weeks, okay? But I moved ahead to this story for a very specific reason. But so many amazing things happen during this whole day before that are mind-blowing. This is when Jesus walks on the water. This is when he casts out the demons out of the man and the Gadarenes and they go into the swine. This is where they believe in this time, same time period where uh, Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead. This is when uh, the leper is healed and told to go uh, cleanse himself in the temple, but he, he doesn't listen and all these things. There's a, so many things that happened during this time. But when, the way that uh, the story is recorded here, he goes from Capernaum and, they, and then they just say, and the, and the next day he went here. They leave all of that out. Isn't that amazing? Uh, that's what, when the scripture tells us, that so many things happened in the life of Jesus that if they were written down, uh, the world could not contain them. Here we have a man recording the life of Jesus and leaving out all of these great stories that I just told you and moving on from the, the centurion straight to Nain. Isn't that kind of amazing? So, Nain uh, is 
Of course, Nazareth, Nazareth is where Jesus grew up, but Capernaum, and maybe you don't know this, but Capernaum up here is where Jesus lived the whole time during the three years of his ministry. Okay. He was Jesus of Nazareth because that's where he was from. Okay. But he lived for three years in Capernaum. When Jesus it's talked about going to his house is he goes to his house on the Sea of Galilee. He's also known as a what? As a Galilean. Okay. Um, but this road that went between, uh, <clears throat> this road that everyone traveled from Nazareth, actually, all the way uh, into Jerusalem, went right past this little tiny town called Nain. And small and humble as this town was, it boasted a great biblical history. Uh, it shared Mount Mora with another village so close to it, I can't even think of a landmark that close. It's not as far as here to Mount Sterling. It's not as far as here to my house. It's about as far from Andy Kuzel's house to Bubba's. Is a town really close to Nain. Anybody know the name of this town? It's called Shunem. So the town Shunem and Nain are on the same big hill. It's like, kind of like a mountain called Mount Mora. And on it, less than a mile or two, just right around the corner, if you left one village, you could walk over to the other one in just a few minutes, and you would be in the town of Shunem. It was there, as we heard in our readings earlier today, that the prophet Elisha came to stay in the home of this wise and godly woman known as the, everybody say it, the Shunammite woman. For hundreds of years, the inhabitants of Mount Mora have told and retold the story. So here we are in the city of Nain, and we have a funeral procession coming out of Nain, and we have Jesus coming into Nain with an entire procession of people as well. Two parades actually are colliding, okay? Now, God's man, as history history tells us, before Elisha was who? Elijah. Elijah, okay? Elijah proceeded Elisha. Okay, and so they sound very similar. And the, and the reason why they get so confused in our mind is that they are very connected. And many of the stories that happened to Elijah, the same story or a story very much like it happens to Elisha. It's not like they're so different that, you, you know, they're very, very similar, as you will see here. So <clears throat> Elijah, also known as Elijah the Tishbite, uh, had defied uh, King Ahab and the evil Jezebel, and thwarted their evil plots against him and against the nation of Israel. Um, The prophet Elijah had caused it not to rain for three and a half years. As you might remember, God sends Elijah where? He goes out to this brook, and who feeds him out there? You guys remember the story? Ravens are sent, and they're bringing him food, and he's out there for three and a half years. Can you imagine this? The king of, of Israel was so bad... And, and the prophet was so upset with them that he prayed. And the book of James tells us that the prophet Elijah prayed that it would not rain and it did not rain for three and a half years. Can you imagine that? Three and a half years of no rain? But the three and a half years of no rain did not only hurt the king Ahab and Jezebel, but it hurt all the people of the land. They were collateral damage. And during this time, you might remember that he goes and he lives out by this brook, ravens feed him, but eventually the brook dries up and he's there and now he doesn't have any water to drink, even though the ravens might be able to bring him food, they're not bringing him water. And so God tells him, he says, it's time for you to get up 
and go to a, to a town called Zarephath. And you're going to go there and I have commanded a widow woman. See, what are we on again now? We're on widow woman again, right? I've commanded a widow woman to take care of you. But let me tell you about this widow woman, okay? Let's call her the widow of Zarephath, okay? The widow of Zarephath has how many sons? One son. She's in a bad situation herself. And so he goes to the widow of Zarephath who only has one son. There are a lot of widows in the Bible. There's a, there are widows in the story of Elijah. There's widows in the story of Elisha. And now we have who coming in in Luke chapter 7 meeting a widow who only had one son. Can you see the parallel here? And then not only is this happening, but it's happening within a mile or two, which, you know, in, in, if you were going to ask someone where it was, it, you might as well say it's in the exact same place. We don't know exactly where these things happen, but most likely they happen within seeing distance of each other there on the Mount Mora. So he meets the widow Zarephath by the gates of the city and asks her for a drink of water. And while she's getting a drink of water, he says to her, could you also make me some bread, a little cake of bread? And she says, well, the reason why I'm gathering sticks by the gate. And here we have another parallel. Where does Jesus meet uh, the, 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 the funeral? He meets it where? At the gate of the city. Where does Elijah uh, meet the widow of Zarephath. He meets her where? At the gate of the city. She's gathering sticks and she's gathering sticks because she's going to go and bake a cake. And she says, me and my only son are going to eat our last meal and we're going to die. So now we have a widow, a widow with one son, a widow with one son who's by the gate, a widow with one son is by the gate who's about to go and her son and her are going to die. She's in a bad situation. So this sounds a lot like with a lot of similarities to the story that we're hearing about in the New Testament. We know what happens. We know that the prophet says, well, hey, the Lord God of Israel says that if you make me a cake first, I'll take care of you. And why? Right, remember what happens? He tells her to make the cake. She obeys. And her cruise of oil, everybody say, it wasted not. And the barrel of meal, it failed not. It failed not. And so for many, many uh, meals, those two were preserved. And so God saved the boy and saved the mother. And it was a, it was a wonderful thing. Now, <clears throat> you might know that story, but you might not remember what happens next. What happens next is that the boy who the prophet saved and the woman, the boy, dies. So now we have, what do we have? We have a, a widow. We have a widow with only son. And now we have a widow with an only son whose only son dies. Is this starting to sound repetitious to you and familiar to you? Because then later with Elijah, Elisha, what do we find? We find a widow. Uh, she's not a widow, actually, the Shunammite woman. But she's, her husband's very, very old. And he's about to die. And she has an only son. And they did a miracle for him. And he dies. See the pictures here? Do you think the people of that time would have noticed this? Absolutely they would have noticed it. They would have noticed it. It would have been like, they would have been like this. Wow. What did we just see? We just saw, oh, my glasses almost fell off there. We, 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 would have, we saw a, a widow woman by the gate, a widow with an only son, and he's dead. And here we have Jesus coming and intersecting it. They didn't see it coming, but after it happened, they were like, wow. Okay? 
the woman was so stricken with grief that she goes to Elijah and she says, what have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? I mean, this is a pretty harsh accusation. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, you, you know, the saying like, you know, you do something good for me, but then the good you do like kills me kind of a thing, you know? And so here you are. Oh, so you saved my son and me from starving to death only to have my son die. Like, why didn't you just kill me? She's very angry. And so she basically lays hold of him with her words in so much, Derek, that her words penetrate deep into the heart of the prophet. And he goes to God and he's like, oh, God, Lord, what have you done here? You're killed. This boy is being killed that we saved. this, you know, oh, God, save the boy. And so the prophet goes in and he, he lays on the boy on his bed three times. And he's praying and praying and praying and nothing is happening. So he keeps doing it and keep doing it. And eventually what happens, guys? The boy raises up. It's a happy story. So the widow of Zarephath, she's, her life is saved. And then later her boy dies. And then later her boy is risen from the dead when the prophet Elijah encounters him. Okay? Everybody say, good resurrection. The story ends after he prays and it says, And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of his chamber into his house and delivered him to his mother. Okay? Don't forget that. It's in the story. You know, you know how you hear a story and you hear Jack, you know, Jack and Jill went up the hill to, you know, right? and, and we know that story. If someone said, and they both, you know, I don't even know how it goes exactly or, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to do like the bad version of it or something. But, the, but basically there are, you know, we know stories and the words are in, like when we say once upon a time, right? Or they all lived happily ever after, right? We, are, we recognize those phrases. These phrases are repeated throughout the Bible in such a way that they had meaning in their time. And so it was a saying and... And, and God delivered the boy to his mother. It was like a saying, like, like, uh, like, you know, you're hearing, you know, Shelby, imagine you're hearing a sad story and you're waiting for the end. What? And then the prophet delivers the boy to his mother. And you're like, oh, this is great. So throughout the, the region in that time, there was a saying, you know, and so this saying was well known to come from the story here of Elijah. And then later it's repeated in Elijah. Everybody say good resurrection. So when it was time for God to call Elijah up to him in a chariot of fire, a man named Elisha, who we've been talking about, went there and he begged for a double portion of God's spirit, twice of what Elijah had, and God blessed him with it. A careful study of the life of these two great prophets demonstrates this to be true. Many of the things done by Elijah are, are mirroring what had already happened or, or in the life of Elisha, are mirroring what had already happened in the life of Elijah. Okay, so inasmuch so, uh, this this woman, of course, we learned about the Shunammite woman. She, uh, in Second Kings chapter four, that she was a good woman. She was not a widow, but her husband was old and was about to be widowed, and she had no son. And we know the story. We heard it just a few minutes ago when they read. So when her miracle was done for her, the miracle of being able to give birth to a son, she then loses the miracle in the death of her son. Can you see the parallels here? Okay. So God rewarded the barren son only to, uh, now the boy dies as we heard in the story. So when this happens, if you read in the story, Elisha is there 
And I thought it was uh, interesting how he, she asked, he sent the servant ahead, is everything okay? Oh, everything's great. Why? She didn't want to be sent away. She didn't want to, oh, no, go away. You got a problem. I don't have time to see you. No. Oh, everything's just fine. And she comes and she grabs a hold of him with her hands and she grabs a hold of him by the feet. And she basically says, uh, you know, he's the great prophet. He's going to send his staff ahead and you're going to lay it across on the baby. And he's like, no. She's like, no. I will not leave you. You know, she swears. She says, by the Lord, let me tell you what, I'm not leaving you. And he goes, okay, well, if you're not going to leave, maybe I should go to, to your son. So he goes again. And you know, he, he, when he, his servant Gehazi comes and tells him, I put the staff on the kid and nothing's happening. Now, at this point, Elisha's probably wondering, I thought I had the double portion here, you know. So he, he falls back on his old... Uh, you know, on his history, and he said, well, what did Elijah do? He was in the same situation. He was, there was a woman and there was a widow and there was a son. He was dead. And what did he do? So, so he does the same thing. He goes in and he lays on the boy and, uh, so much so that the boy who is cold and dead, he starts to warm up, but he doesn't raise from the dead. And it says that Elisha went and he's pacing around the house. Can you imagine this? You know, I'm coming here and I'm the man of God. I'm going to hear your son. And, you, and, and he's in there and he's in there forever. And then he comes back out and then he's walking around, you know, and when he's walking around, he's probably thinking, I don't really know what to do. I mean, I've already, I sent the staff, which was supposed to show how great I was, but that didn't really quite work. And then I did exactly what Elijah did and it really didn't work. And so he goes back in and he tries it again. And when he tries it this time, guess what happens guys? The boy raises up and then the story ends with what? And the one, and, and the prophet gives the son back to his mother. Okay. Everybody say good resurrection. Here in our text, Jesus is, as I told you, very near the spot where the Shunammite was raised. He's going into the city of Nain with a parade of his followers. They've just witnessed many healings, demons cast out as they travel to villages around the Sea of Galilee. His parade is coming to town. Another procession is heading out of town. And he meets, here he meets the widow of Nain. She, like the widow of Zarephath and the Shunammite woman, had only one son. When the widow's son dies, not only is she sad and tragic for this because she loves him, but because of all of the things I told you before, her poverty and her inheritance. Here it would have been easy for the people there to see a contrast between Jesus and the great prophet Elijah and Elisha. And in fact, in this event when it is recorded in mark it says after this people begin to say who has come they're saying it's elijah why would they say that they're saying it because jesus did the exact same thing and you will see this in scripture a repetition uh uh, sinclair ferguson calls it a repetition in redemption and we'll there's a quote i'll read you a little bit later um now here in our country it's quickly going out of fashion but in, and maybe you and your family don't even do this, but you should. If a funeral procession comes your way, what should you do? You should pull over to the side of the road. Now, some of you might go, well, I, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. Well, it's a way of honoring and respecting people who have lost loved ones. You pull over, and what it says is, I'm not too busy in my life to stop. A person has died, and I'm going to give them a little bit of respect, okay? In the South, people not only stop, they get out of their cars... And they take their hats off and they stand with their hats over their hearts. Have you guys ever seen this? I've seen it before. And you go, wow, these people are nicer than these people up north. The people up north are always in a big hurry. Well, they had an even more serious 
tradition in the time of Christ. The tradition was, is if you and your whole band of uh, Ratliffs were on your way somewhere and you encountered a funeral procession, guess what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to follow it. So you are supposed to go and mourn with the people. And so when Jesus has a parade, he has a whole bunch of disciples and followers. He had come down from the Sermon on the Mount. He had been doing miracles and all kinds of things. And people were just crowded around him. And so his parade was as big as the funeral. Well, they, you know, so he sees this. Um, As I told you before, the widow of Zarephath laid hold on Elijah with her words. The widow, not the widow, but the Shunammite woman lays hold on the prophet with uh, with her hands. But in this story, Jesus is the one who lays hold. As the man goes by, his funeral beer, they call it, kind of like a, something that carries the body. Jesus didn't touch the body. You weren't, if you were a, a Jew, it would have been a defilement. He doesn't touch the dead man. But he does reach out and he touches the cart that he's on and he stops it. So here he is. And the language here is the exact same language that is used in the laying hold that is talked about uh, in the story of Elisha. Okay? When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said, Weep not. And he came, and he touched the bier. And they that, there, they that bear the body stood still. And he said, Young man, I say, arise. Here we have no three-prayer ritual. No laying on the dead man. No laying his staff over his face. No praying three times. No walking around the house. In fact, Jesus does not even pray. You know what he does? He speaks to the dead, and the dead man tells him to arise, and he does. Now, so if Elijah had the power of God, and if Elisha had a double portion of it, what are the people seeing right before their eyes? Greater than who? Greater than all the prophets. He's not praying to God. He's speaking to this situation and causing life to come immediately. He sat up, began to speak. And it ends with what, guys? You guys know what the story ends with? And he was delivered to his mother. This is that same exact phrase. The people that know the language, uh, well, I'm not a scholar to know these things, but uh, th- this was, this was a so evident to the people reading it at the time. Everybody say, good resurrection. <laughs> Bible teacher and well-known speaker Sinclair Ferguson calls attention to this as an example of repeated pattern in history of redemption he concludes that the pattern of repetition quote comes to its fullness in the person of jesus christ the great prophet who heals not merely through delegated authority from god but on his own authority without rituals without prayer with a simple word of power here the great god and savior of israel is here now in the flesh everybody say good resurrection now as good as these wonderful events were there were better. Everybody say better resurrection. We read this for you earlier, but I will read it again. Women, Hebrews eleven thirty five, received their dead, raised to life again, and others though. Everybody say others. They were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better. Everybody say better. So we had people who received the miracle of resurrection in their life, but then we re- then these other people receive what? They don't. Some were raised to life and some were not, that they might receive a better, everybody say better resurrection. 
Others had trial of cruel mocking, scourgings, moreover bonds of imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn asunder, tempted, slain of the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts, mountains, in dens, and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better. Everybody say better. Better thing for us that without us they would not be made perfect what does it mean to have a better resurrection and the answer here i would tell you is this do you guys know all the people and jesus raised three people from the dead in his life and these prophets raised other people from the dead but you know what happened to all of the people that god raised from the dead that were living like lazarus and like jarius daughter and like uh here we have the widow of nain you know what happened to them later in life they died. This is always amazing to me. People who are all about faith and health and wealth and prosperity, they're all about the healing. They're all about raising people from the dead. But God says that those that don't get that get something better. Everybody say better. You know what would be better than dying and raising from the dead only to die again later? You know what would be better than that? Just when you're raised from the dead, you just stay raised. And when you are these people who didn't receive the miraculous story of the raising of the dead, what was better than that is that they didn't. And you might go, well, how's that better? Well, it is. The Bible said that the, not the Bible, but we have come to understand that the blood, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And in Reformation Month, we have found that uh, the deaths of these good and godly people throughout history have been those things that have promoted the spread of Christianity throughout the world. That they have been like seeds planted in the fields of the world that when their stories are told and retold, they change the world. And I know I've been talking for a little while, but I just want to press on just a little bit more because I want to talk about this subject for just a moment. The power of not being raised from the dead, of not being delivered, of being tortured and losing your life as did so many wonderful great men of God and have throughout the centuries is that they inspire us to live for God and they help us understand that that is the most Christ-like thing that we can do. A young man by the name of John Fox, everybody, everybody say John Fox. And when you think Fox, I want you to think F-O-X-E. Okay, not F-O-X. His name was John Fox. He was used by God to teach this and he continues to inspire many people to this day. So stick with me for just a minute on this theme, okay? In every century, there are examples of courageous Christians willing to lose their lives rather than to deny their faith. One history-making book gathered the stories of martyrs and through its pages has inspired Christians for generations. Y'all know what the name of the book is? Now what's amazing is that you think the name is called the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Because everybody calls it that. But that's not what the book was called. They call it that because they realize that this book and these incredible stories were the work of one man's desire to see them read. And his name was John Fox. Okay? But John, the, he didn't name it Fox's Book of Martyrs. Could you imagine it? Foise's Book of Martyrs. I mean, you know, I mean, you don't even want your name associated with it. Why? Because you're writing about people that have done things so much greater than you. You feel like an idiot. You're writing the story and everyone, oh, I have Fox's Book of Martyrs. You're not going to put your name on that. And he didn't as well. 
He published a book. His name was John Fox. He published a book in 1563, right in the middle of the Protestant Reformation. He was born, and I'll get to that in just a second, but he was born quite a bit before this. But his book was called Acts and Monuments. And he, his goal was to give a universal history of God's work at the building of his church. Um, often called Fox's Book of Martyrs, the, the history has become a Christian classic. And there was a time when the Bible and Fox's Book of Martyrs were the only books that Christians ever owned. This book is, this book is uh, critical to Christian understanding. Let me tell you a little bit about him and I'll, I'll try to end with this because what, the reason why I want to tell you about him and his life and his book is for you and your family, but to also try to understand there are more ways to, to work for God than just to go die for him. There are more ways to be a, than being a great preacher. There's plenty of ways. And what John Fox taught us is that it's worthwhile to be a person who pays attention to detail, who can tell a story, who, can, who is, uh, will doggedly pursue the facts and record these stories. The great stories that we've learned from him, you know the stories, but you don't know that the why you know them is because of one man. One man who lived a really, really long time ago named John Fox. He was born in 1516 in a place called Boston in England uh, as the Reformation began to dawn. The year he was born, Erasmus published his New Testament in Greek. And the year after he was born is when Martin Luther posted his 95 thesis on the church at Wittenberg. Um, Fox read extensively in Greek and in Latin. He read the church fathers. And when he compared them with the Roman church of his day, he concluded that the church had departed from the faith of the earliest Christians. At Oxford, Fox began to adopt Reformation views and also met reformers such as Hugh Latimer. You guys remember Hugh Latimer? Hugh Latimer that died uh, with, uh, with Ringel. And, and on the same spot where Cranmer, the Oxford martyrs, he was a friend of John Fox's. Can you see how he's seeing him and knowing him personally, how this would deeply have touched his life. He also knew William Tyndale. Uh, and they were there learning together. And of course, we know that Tyndale and Latimer would end up becoming martyrs. Because he could not accept the theology of the Roman church, Fox lost his position in Oxford and could not be ordained to the priesthood. He married, and for a time he found work as a tutor, and then he moved to London, and he couldn't find a job. Now, here is a guy who loves God, wants to serve God, wants to do good, but he can't find work. And this might seem a curse, but you know what it ended up being? It ended up being a blessing. While he's not working, what's he doing? He's reading, and he's thinking, and his heart is being full. He's studying the Word of God. God is preparing him in this time. You know, he could have doggedly just beat, beat, beat the doors down, you know, but he's like, you know, Hey, I'm going to just do what God has called me to do. And he did starving and seemingly hopeless. One day he's sitting at St. Paul's church in London where we've been, honey, and a stranger sat down beside him and he had no idea who the man was and never figured this out. Uh, he gave him a big bunch of money. He, he has no idea why this happened to him, but it happened to him. And then God, like the prophet, uh, uh, Elijah provided for him through strangers. Strangers would come and give the man money. And, he, and he, he was like, this is crazy, you know. But God was preparing him for a work to do. The stranger said, be of good courage, for in a few days God will give you more certain sustenance. Fox never learned who the stranger was, but soon became a tutor in the house of the Duchess of Richmond and began to teach uh, their children. 
Besides tutoring, Fox wrote a number of Latin tracts urging reform. He began the work on a history that is now called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And uh, when Henry VIII died and his young son Edward became king, those wishing for reform gained power at court. Edward's reign, as we learned a few weeks ago, was brief. However, at his death, his half-sister, Queen Mary, ascended to the throne. She reestablished the Roman Catholic Church. Those who had followed the Reformation were imprisoned and persecuted. Many of them were his friends, and the other ones fled to what, if you read in history, they call the continent. But really, it's going across the English Channel to where? To France. They'll say the continent. What they mean is France. Okay. A man named the Bishop Gardiner was Queen Mary's instrument against her reformers. He made inquiries regarding Fox and decided he was going to find Fox who was writing these tracts and he was going to have him killed. Uh, Alarmed, someone tips him off and he goes and he jumps in a ship and as he's leaving, he sees them on the shore there to get him, but he gets away just in time. A storm, though, blows him back to shore, and he has to hide out for several days, but it then convinces the captain to take him across, and there he was. He saw France as kind of an exile away from doing the things of God, but while he was there, he began to learn about the Huguenots. He began to learn about St. Bartholomew's massacre. He begins to learn about all of these horrible things that have happened to Christians in France, and then he's driven further away, and he begins to learn about the Spanish Inquisition, and he begins to learn about the persecution in Italy. And as he gathers these stories, Luke, he begins to say, what a great thing I could do if I could find these stories and I could get all these details and I could put them in one place for people to be able to read and to be inspired. So he did. This unplanned exile, just like John John Bunyan's 12 years in prison and so many years in prison by the Apostle Paul gave him time to write. Uh, In... 1554, he published History of the Acts of the Monuments of the Church. Never before had Europeans heard the specific stories of how John Wycliffe's Lollards were chased all over and persecuted and treated horribly. They'd never uh, learned about the many stories of those that had suffered throughout all of England. While Fox worked as a proofreader, as a printer in Basel, Switzerland, he he continued collecting information on Christians persecuted there for their faith. He added to his history contemporary stories from the Queen of England. And then he learned the stories of Cranmer and Ridley and Latimer. And uh, when Queen Mary died in 1558, John Fox returned to England and he was financially destitute. His former pupil became the Duke of Norfolk, though, and gave Fox and his family a whole home and gave him provisions. I mean, wouldn't this be amazing? He's destitute, he's poor, a stranger gives him money. He has nothing, doesn't know what to do, and someone comes and gives him a house and gives him all of these things. He began to see that as Constantine was the protector of the church from the early 300s, that when Queen Elizabeth comes in, she will be the protector of the church. And in fact, Queen Elizabeth made it a, a mandatory thing that in the whole, that in every church, uh, there would be a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs along with the Bible. Uh, and she ended up giving him a paid position at the cathedral in Salisbury. His history motivated in parts by his strong theological and patriotic views, Fox believed that God was using England in a special way to prepare for his second coming. Fox's book helped create an English sense of patriotism, a sense that they were special, that they were God's elect and chosen people as much as the Old Testament Israel had been. 
And I have much more here and I could, I could get to it. There's a lot more. But basically what I want to get to is that Fox began to read these histories and, and they began to change him. And they begin to change the people. And he realized that he all his life had thought he had some other great purpose only to be working on his purpose the whole time. This is how God works. Amen? And so what he was able to do is bring us a testimony of these stories. Folks, we may be living in a time in the not too distant future where God may call some of your sons and daughters who think they're going to go do great things. And they do, but they're not going to do the great things they think they're going to do. Maybe what they'll do is they'll be writers and journalists and and they'll write books. Writing books is a powerful thing because we have no way of knowing about what goes on in people's lives. We have no way of knowing about how God works. You've heard stories and told stories about what God has done in your life, but where will these stories go? They'll go to be forgotten. But when someone takes the time to write those down, someone takes the time to craft them in such a way And in this book, and I recommend that you read it, I went through and kind of sped read the whole thing uh, this week and saw how he then goes back, Jason, and he talks about from the very first martyr of Stephen all the way up uh, to the time of his own death and collecting and collecting these stories. He spent all this time working on it, working on it, and remained faithful to the Lord the whole time. Everybody say, good resurrection. resurrection. Those martyrs had what? They They will have what? A better resurrection. You know, God has chosen some better thing. So, you know, the, the happiest ending of the story is not always, and, and, and the widow was given back her son. The Bible tells us sometimes the better story is that we don't get our sons back. I pray to the Lord, you know, that nothing bad happens to us, but my wife was talking to my kids the other day and they're like, she's like, you know what, when you guys are over there, I'm not afraid. She said, if something happens to you when you're in Myanmar and when you guys are doing the work of the Lord, she said, then it does. You guys belong to God. And, and you know what? I don't, I don't want to be the, I don't want to be the guy who has to suffer the loss of a child or suffer the loss of my wife or my wife have to be without me. But folks, the Bible tells us that's a better story than the story of the one who was raised from the dead. Everybody say, good resurrection? Better resurrection. Take time. Read a little bit about Fox's Book of Martyrs. Read a little bit about his life. He had no idea what God was preparing him for in the same way. uh, Guys, you have no idea what God is preparing you for. Be faithful in what God gives you to do. Do it with all of your might, but know that God's unseen hand is directing your life and He's preparing you for an incredible purpose that he has set forth. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Lord, as we think of this resurrection, this better resurrection is the resurrection that you had. You died and you rose again from the dead. You had the best resurrection. Never more to return again under the grip of death. And Lord, those who, like William Tyndale, tasted the flames, whose torture must have been extraordinary, their story of not being raised from the dead is a better story because the resurrection that they will obtain to will be a better resurrection. Help us today to understand that we have been called to be used of God in our lives and in our deaths, that all of us one day 
will be resurrected for you are the resurrection and the life and anyone that believes in you though he were dead yet shall he live in Christ's name we pray everybody said amen hello this is pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.